Hey, this is Marty Martin. And Art Woods. We're the host of Big Biology, and we're here at the top of this episode to ask you for a favor. We need you to donate to the podcast. Fortunately, we just made that a lot easier to do. We just launched a Patreon page. And basically, Patreon is a website where you can become a patron of the podcast by making a monthly or even a per-episode donation. The address for that page is patreon.com slash bigbio. We'll do our best to keep making the podcast no matter what happens with Patreon, but if you think we're making something valuable and you'd like to be part of that, we're asking you to give us just a little money. The Patreon page will also, eventually, be a place where we can interact directly with listeners. Right now, the page is fairly simple, but in the future, we'll post exclusive content and all sorts of extras for our patrons. We're calling December our year-end pledge drive, and our goal is to get 30 patrons on Patreon by the end of the month. These first 30 patrons will get a Big Biology t-shirt and a sticker. Anyone able to donate $100 or more all at once or over a period will get a shout-out on a future episode. Since we're asking you to step up and donate, we too are going to step up and start doing more and different stuff with Big Biology. For instance, this episode is a recording of our first live event, and we already have two more live events planned for next year. Our hope is to hold five to six live events every year, and the more donations we can get, the more likely we'll be able to hold an event near you. We're also excited to announce that we're going to start releasing episodes twice a month. Instead of producing a short version and a long version of every episode once a month, we're going to produce one show that, that kind of splits the difference. This way, we can release two different interviews every month. So again, if you want to support us, you can donate on the main website or the new Patreon page. The first address is bigbiology.org, and the Patreon site is patreon.com bigbio. And if you can't afford to support us now with money, support us with social capital, including tweets and Instagram and Facebook posts. You can find our social media feeds on our website. We think that we're making something pretty valuable, and we hope you do too. Thanks for your support, and here's the first of two episodes this month. Be on the lookout for the second with evolutionary biologist Mihaila Pavlichev in about two weeks. Almost all of us know someone who has had cancer. It's a disease that affects more than a million people in the U.S. each year. According to the Centers for Disease Control, only heart disease kills more people annually in the country. Traditionally, we've taken an all-out approach to deal with cancer. We zap tumors with radiation and poison them with chemicals. Our mindset has mostly been to make them go away at almost any cost. Sometimes that approach works and patients go on to live otherwise healthy lives, but too often some of the cancer cells survive. Evolutionary biologist and cancer researcher Joel Brown at the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa says that this is often the source of a very big problem. At that point, it is evolutionary game on. It's evolutionary game on. And I want the physicians to know that. Mm -hmm. And they need to communicate that to the patient. That at that point, if you do not kill all of them, those cancer cells will respond. Mm -hmm. And when they evolve, they will be worse than what you started with. Joel doesn't argue that we do away with what works. He just hopes that we also use ecological and evolutionary ideas to create better treatments for cancer patients. We are trained to try to save species. We are trained to try to save them, protect the environment. But can we use the evil twin? Can we use our knowledge then to actually wreak destruction on a species that nobody is sorry to see go extinct? Uh -huh. We interviewed Joel in early November in front of a live audience at circa 1949, a brewery in Tampa, Florida. And it was our first live event, which was a lot of fun for us. We're going to play you the whole interview in this podcast, as well as some of the questions that we got from the audience. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And you're listening to Big Biology.
Sounds good deal. Good. Yeah. Well, let's get going. Um, so we're just delighted to have Joel Brown here. Um, he works on an interesting set of things about about cancer, which we don't work on, but he kind of comes from our world in the sense that uh, he's worked a lot in his past on the evolutionary ecology of, of different organisms. And so what we're going to do today is talk about some kind of crazy ideas about uh, about what cancer is and, and how we might combat cancer using new ideas that come out of ecology and, and evolution. And so I just wanted to start by, by asking you, uh, you guys have some ideas about about cells in tumors inside the body and and to think about those as like populations of organisms that are living out in the wild so maybe just talk about that for a second yeah so art if you go on to the uh, national cancer institute website of nih uh, they will define cancer as a disease of unregulated proliferation which indeed it is tumors they grow uh, i will be described as a disease of the genes Indeed, it represents genetic changes, um, but in fact, once cancer initiates, we feel that you're actually looking at a speciation event in which a cell of your body or those that have had friends, family, or themselves are suffering from cancer, that cancer cell now becomes the unit of selection. The tumor becomes its ecosystem. And just like Darwin's finches discovering or dispersing to the Galapagos Islands, you start to see the evolution and diversification uh-huh. of a new species anew, but it tends to have horrible consequences. Uh-huh. So, so maybe talk about that speciation process. So, so how does that happen in, inside our own bodies? I mean, we get, we get these new species arising. What, what generates that? Well, so there's always a tension between what we call levels of selection. So the cells of your body are serving you. Uh-huh. Isn't that kind of cool? Yeah. So the individual cells of your body are part of your whole organism program. But every time your cells divide, you are playing with evolutionary fire. If one of them decides to say, I've got to be me, <laughs> and in the process mutates or breaks the contract and decides, I am going to be free of, from its point of view, the shackles, and of course this is in a non-cognitive way, then at that point, there is the risk of cancer. Now, fortunately, our body is chock-a-block full of anti-cancer adaptations to prevent cells from ever achieving that. But as we live longer and longer, have more and more cell division events, uh, the likelihood then that add one of these cell divisions um, produces cancer becomes then, unfortunately, a probability. Uh-huh. So, so what are some of those, those mechanisms that our bodies have just naturally to keep, keep that from happening? Well, so probably the first is a stem cell structure. Uh And that is when a cell divides, it actually can only go a certain number of cell divisions. So take a skin cell before that cell actually begins to differentiate and is unable to divide further. So that lineage kind of has a built-in lifetime in a sense. Exactly. And then you may have heard, there's a lot of fancy names in cancer, but one of them is what is often referred to as cancer is initiated with what's called the P53 mutation. Uh-huh. And that is because our cells carry a mirror on the wall. And it's not unlike um, sort of mirror, mirror on the wall. But in this case, it's mirror, mirror on the wall. Do I look normal? Huh. And if I don't look normal as a cell, I'm instructed to commit suicide. Huh. And so we have a built-in regulator to keep ourselves normal, as it were. But once that mirror is broken and mirror, mirror on the wall, 
do I look normal? Well, I can't see you at all, so you must be fine. Huh. So, so that single mutation kind of knocks out this, this lifetime effect of a, of a lineage. Uh, that, that's kind of crazy, right? So why, why does right. it come down to one, one gene and well, not so a whole happens, suite of genes? No, so it's a bit like, you know, barriers on a road that goes off a cliff. Uh-huh. There's actually a lot of barriers. Uh-huh. So one of these are the cell divisions. Uh, the other barrier are internal. Uh-huh. If you're feeling weird, you commit suicide um, for fear of bringing down the whole house. The other is the cells that surround you if they perceive you're a bit odd, um, they will kill you. Huh. Um, they have chemicals. So in other words, for a cancer cell to become a speciation event, to become its own organism and begin an ecological and evolutionary journey, it has to simultaneously throw away the desire to stop dividing. It has to throw away these mechanisms to commit suicide once I feel I'm odd. And it has to somehow communicate or stop listening to the signals of my neighbor saying you're odd and you should just go away. Huh. Huh. Interesting. So can we just circle around just for a second to this idea of, of levels of selection? And I want to just kind of amplify that a nice, for simple a topic, minute. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you say levels of selection, you're meaning that evolution is working at different levels of biological organization. So, so what are those levels? That's right. So uh, if you at, at one level, life, of course, began as a single celled organism. Uh-huh. So, in essence, the whole evolution of multicellularity, you and I, Uh represented a shift in levels of selection, where those individual cells went from perhaps being a scummy biofilm, like a scummy layer of algae or bacteria, to being self-organized, differentiated, in which they now become part of a whole organism program. Mm -hmm. And so what you're really seeing is it's now happening in reverse. Hmm. So in cancer, these cells then are in a sense returning oddly to an ancestral state. So So they were cooperating for the good of the organism and then individual cells sort of take it upon themselves to strike out on their own and and serve their own interests instead of the body. That's right, so So. from a scientific point of view, and it's, it's both fascinating and of course horrific, Basically, when somebody has a cancer or the cancer cell then speciates, suddenly that cancer cell, for the first time, in about 600 to 700 million years, is once again a single-celled organism. Mm -hmm. Wow. Neat. So you've, um, I mean, this is a big biology podcast, so we want to, not only is it a big biology, I guess we wear the evolutionary biology and ecology hats more than we do anything else. Um, we can talk a little bit about the end, but at the about the other the other topics that we talked about. But I thought, um, without boring everybody in the audience of the excruciating details of scientific literature, um, there's a paper that you and colleagues have written recently that I just thought was fantastic about putting into the framework that people like Art and me, where we can wrap our heads around cancer by equating various types of tumors to the species that we all know and love. So maybe you could walk us through. Art tried to 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 sort of plug it a minute ago how a tumor is like a Darwin's finch. Sure. So if one begins to see the tumor as an ecosystem Hmm. populated by these cancer cells that are both ecologically dynamic, just like you see the rise and fall of population numbers, you know, around here in Tampa right now, the Muscovy ducks are all being followed by their ducklings. Um, I'm sure everybody is noticing the very midget Anolis lizards that are hatching out in that are everywhere, the little (laughs) midget guys that are out there. In a sense, then that represents the ecological dynamic, births and deaths. And of course, cancer cells, as any cells, experience that. But furthermore, there's the evolutionary dynamic in which tragically, but 
background as, as an evolutionary biologist, not unsurprisingly, you see these cancer cells beginning to evolve adaptations to their ecological circumstances. So for instance, two of my favorite organisms are squirrels. Um, I don't know how many people here like squirrels, but squirrels. I love squirrels. And, <laughs> and my two favorites are the, and of course you have to look around around here, is the gray squirrel and the fox squirrel. In my own research over 30 years, the fox squirrel is the anti-predator specialist. They can manage habitats with high predation risk, but they tend to be lousy competitors. The gray squirrel, on the other hand, is a superb competitor, as anybody who has them in their backyard knows. They can thwart your bird feeder and whatnot, but they tend to be quite susceptible to predators. So we postulated then when we began working in cancer that if you're in the interior of a tumor, Mm -hmm. That's a relatively safe environment from the immune system, which represents the predation risk. But boy, the competition is intense. If you're on the margins of the tumor, um, you are more exposed to the immune system. Predation risk is going to be higher. Um, but resources are relatively a bit richer. Because they're coming in from the outside. Exactly. Right. And so we predicted a priori that we should see fox squirrel-like cancer cells on the edge of tumors and that we should see gray squirrel-like cancer cells on the interior. Of course, we had to define different traits because, of course, the traits, but that fundamental trade-off between food and safety, which is fundamental to almost all ecological systems, meant that when we looked for it, we identified the traits that a cancer cell has that makes them invulnerable to the immune system or makes them good competitors. When we looked at stage three breast cancer, and we looked at over 20 women, looked at the biopsy of stage three breast cancer, analyzed them as we would as ecologists. We found both species hmm. in all of them. Hmm. And both species were living exactly where you would expect them to live. Hmm. And the message to an ecologist might be, sorry, Marty and Art, might be <laughs> cool. <laughs> but if you're the woman with stage three breast cancer, that's totally uncool. Right. And so our interest then at Moffitt then is how can we use this ecological knowledge that you're not just treating a cancer cell. Yep. You're not just treating a tumor. You're actually treating a community of Darwin's finches of cancer cells. Right. Wouldn't it be better to understand that to have more effective treatments? Yeah. Huh. So you, another one of my uh, my favorite species are the other introduced species, and thinking about um, you know the the sort of cane toads that live at the edge, and end up being the ones that move out into the body, the invaders, the, the sort of the van, the, the, those at the edge of the vanguard. What what about those guys? That's right. And Marty, you know your work on house sparrows and any species that's going to be spreading, mm. where those individuals that are on the vanguard, they're highly dispersive. They tend to be more mobile. And there is another trade-off. Mm -hmm. The species on the edge that tends to be more mobile, that's able to colonize, often tends to be a poor competitor, right. but able to handle the harshness of new environments. Mm -hmm. And indeed, if you look at cancers, sadly, that becomes part of the metastatic process mm -hmm. where cancer cells from a tumor will then colonize, essentially become an invasive species of a nether organ. Mm -hmm. Indeed, you begin to see the characteristics of your house sparrows in yeah, Kenya, right. the cane toads that you see in Australia. So yeah. again, we can see an ecological signature and hopefully can use that then to at least combat the devastating consequences. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And one of the things that I, I think you've talked a bunch about that, that makes those things so special is their propensity for plasticity. 
So they're not good competitors, but they, I mean, do you want to say something about how they use versions of plasticity to cope with their new surroundings? Yeah, and maybe just say what plasticity that is would help, too, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so what one finds in cancer cells is an amazing capacity to vary their metabolism, their behavior in response to changing circumstances. And so, for instance, cancer cells, as they experience a lack of oxygen in the tumor, perhaps not unlike your insects where you're studying hypoxia or other issues in their metabolism, they have an amazing capacity to upregulate metabolic pathways mm -hmm. that allow them to basically garner more oxygen, or they have the capacity to actually cease using oxygen for their metabolism where they reduce their need for oxygen in their metabolism. But part of the reason they can exhibit this kind of phenotypic plasticity is that a given cancer cell has access to the entire human genome. So the entire human genome allows us to have brain cells, liver cells, skin, hair, all of the specialized features. As soon as you are a cancer cell, you carry the spell book. You basically carry the <laughs> You can open the it to whatever page you want and pull up that spell, huh? Exactly, yeah. yes. Looks mm -hmm. neat. So, so another uh, sort of ecological idea that, that kind of caught me off guard when I was reading your papers was this idea of, of niche construction. And, and the idea is that the sort of broader idea of niche construction is that organisms can create their own environments around them and influence their own physiology and behavior and influence their own evolution. And it was a surprise for me to hear that phrase in a paper about, about cancer. But what I think you were talking about is that these, these cancer cells inside the tumor create their own environments and that, that that very process influences their evolutionary dynamics. So you want to talk about that a little bit? That's right. Yeah. And so cancer cells, as we talked about, and on the one hand, again, this is fascinating, but then becomes some of the challenges and problems of treating cancer, is the cancer cell is being bombarded by signals uh -huh. from the neighboring cells that there's something wrong with them. But on the other hand, they're able to communicate with the neighboring normal cells. Mm -hmm. So you see several processes going on. The cancer cells themselves can produce no nutrients. There's nothing like the equivalent of plants that are photosynthesizing. Mm -hmm. All of their food and their nutrients comes through the blood or through the various fluids of the body. And so they very quickly evolve adaptations in which they will send out signals that tell the normal cells to create blood vessels. So they begin to actually beg for blood vessels. Mm -hmm. And they can actually, through signaling, cause the actual growth of blood vessels towards them. Mm -hmm. It's almost like being able to say, come here, come here. Furthermore, because the neighboring cells, the normal cells, represent a threat, they then are able to evolve adaptations in which they can engineer features of their environment, for instance, acidity, mm -hmm. and then that acidity keeps immune sort of cells. Sort back the other, other exactly. cells. Exactly, so things in. like killer T cells, part of our immune system, are intolerant of acidity. Hmm, amazing. And so the cancer cells will actually create the extracellular matrix in the same way that a beaver will build a dam, the same way that a prairie dog will engineer a landscape of uh -huh. burrows and holes. Uh -huh. So uh, I wanted to talk just a little more about this process of angiogenesis. And um, my, my impression from reading the papers is that that can be quite a disorganized process. And so 
they're getting kind of strange patterns of blood flow into the tumors and that that can have consequences for what, what the cells do. So, so what's going on there? So that's right. So generally our vasculature is highly organized. Uh -huh. And as we said, the cells of the blood vessels, the cells that recruit or develop vasculature in our bodies are basically serving us, a very efficient system for delivering fluids, nutrients, maintaining appropriate blood pressure. But once you're a tumor, and I think it's hard to sort of imagine and wrap your head around, a one centimeter tumor, whether it's a lump in the colon, the breast, existing in the pancreas, that can have seven billion cells. Wow. Seven billion cancer cells. Yeah. And what's happening there is the cancer cells are not working collectively. These are now individual agents. Right. These are and in that, essence- And that's a huge effective population, right? So selection is extremely effective in that. Enormous. Yeah. And so if you imagine that you're bringing in vasculature, I would say the vasculature is more like the development of the street system in medieval cities. Huh. A cancer Everybody cell, for themselves. A cancer cell, you can, yeah. that's right, a cancer cell recruits a little bit of vasculature to it, then its neighbor begins to ask for a bit of vasculature, and you get that warren, huh. that maze where there doesn't seem to be any civic planning. <laughs> there was no like Roman main road this way, you know, Chicago laid out as a grid. Uh -huh. This is more like Kathmandu. Uh -huh. mm. Great. So this is, all, this is all fantastic stuff, but I think that what excites me the most about this, and I, I know I'm biased. I mean, I'm, I'm an evolutionary biologist, but I've been in the kind of biomedical world enough to sort of be able to, to straddle both sides. Um, you've done some work that has taken what I think broadly is called evolutionary medicine. You've, you've, you've really put it into an applied context in a way that we don't really have a whole bunch of examples of. So especially the research that you've been doing recently with regard to prostate cancer, if you want to maybe talk us through how you've applied really basic ideas about the competition among different players in a system and using that old, relatively old theory in the interest of, of dealing with a, a real a cancer that makes a difference. Sure. So um, I have the privilege of being able to work at the Moffitt Cancer Center. But my training, my career is like you guys. I'm an evolutionary ecologist. I'm thrilled by the marvels of nature. My life has been devoted then to understanding features of nature. A cancer center is not going to hire an evolutionary ecologist just because they think it's cool to have somebody who... <laughs> we need a squirrel guy. I'm sure yeah, that's what they yeah, said. Yeah, they, did the not, they did not hire me to find fox and gray squirrels <laughs> in a breast cancer. Uh -huh. So obviously this is a problem that is a serious health issue. And so my own interest in applications then is can we use the knowledge we have as ecologists and we are trained to try to save species. We are trained to try to save them, protect the environment, but can we use the evil twin? Can we use our knowledge then to actually wreak destruction on a species that nobody is sorry to see go extinct, uh -huh. that everybody's happy to? And so in this case then, what we were able to do was work with Jing Song Zhang, a prostate oncologist at Moffitt. And we were working with particularly late stage metastatic prostate cancer. This is a cancer that you, I, a stage that no man, anybody's father, their uncle, their partner, their friend, you want nobody to get to. Because at this stage, it is what they call pseudo-palliative care. Uh. They're able to use a last-ditch therapy, but they know it will fail. 
Hmm. And they know that resistance will evolve in the cancer cells. And then what you're doing is you're buying about 13 to 16 months of life. Wow. But in that process is a drug that costs close to $10,000 a month. You have to stay close to the cancer center. And so what we identified as ecologists is this seemed like an ideal circumstance that if you can't kill them all, as we do with many pests, can we live with them? Can we use ecological principles of competitive release, competition among species? Contain rather than kill. Exactly. Can we treat to contain? But in the process of cancer therapy, even when they know they cannot kill it, they will still, excuse me, they will still treat to kill. Mm -hmm. And so what we identified, working with the oncologist, working with cancer biologists, we were able to ascertain that there were three different species of cancer cells within the prostate at this advanced stage. One of them will kill you if you don't do something about it, but it's easy to kill. The second actually feeds the first. Hmm. How's that for rude? Hmm. (laughs) Actually feeds the first, but you can kill it with this last line of therapy. The third is competitively inferior and if you wipe out the first two, it will kill you and you have no therapy. Hmm. So the idea was, is could we use the first two species of cancer cells to be our therapy for the third one? And then as soon as those first two get uppity, we will treat them. And so the idea was to create a sustainable cycle in which we never let the tumor burden reach a level that would compromise the health of these men. And Jing Song Jane, starting just about four years ago, was courageous enough to start a phase one clinical trial. We have now had 18 men enrolled. The equation you would recognize as standard models of ecology and evolution and competitive release. Right, right. And beyond, I guess, our wildest imaginations, we were quite excited. All of these 18 men are still alive hmm. with an average survival time. <laughs> with an average survival time of now 34 months. All of the men in the contemporaneous control are dead. Wow. Wow. Those those are astonishing results. And I mean, shouldn't everybody switch over to this this treatment? Or is it, you know, the kind of thing where it's gonna take many years of additional trials and, you know, hundreds or thousands of additional patients before that becomes a standard treatment? Or, or is, it, or is it such a good result that you could just say, like, let, let's go to this? No, I think there's a couple things here. First off, no. Um, one success, I don't think I would trust a squirrel biologist <laughs> to treat somebody important in your life. Yeah, no. Well, I don't but, know. I might, based on those numbers. <laughs> but more seriously, because of the success of the trial, and we now have at Moffitt four additional trials, These are referred to as evolutionarily informed trials, described in the sense that one tries to measure, anticipate, and steer the evolution of the cancer. Mm -hmm. So we have four additional trials. Just today had the pleasure, Dr. Christine Chung, she's in the chair then of head and neck. And we now have just opened a trial on metastatic thyroid cancer. We have now with prostate cancer, taken this very late stage devastating prostate cancer in Jing Song now, Jing Song Zhang, we've now moved it back one step that involves a much larger number of men. 
and we will try to see. So we are trying to take incremental steps uh -huh. to make sure that we were not a one-hit wonder. Yeah, I get the it. goal here is to really validate and demonstrate that we can contribute to the control of this horrible disease. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that you'd been in contact with one of the patients. Uh, could, could you say a little bit about, about him? That's right. So Robert Butler, and ordinarily patient confidentiality is essential. Uh -huh. But one of the important features of any cancer center, as Moffitt Cancer Center as well, are the patient advocates. These generally are individuals who we have had the privilege of serving and treating. And usually these are individuals that are cancer survivors. And most of our patient advocates then are individuals then that either their cancer has been cured or they've been in remission for sufficiently long that there's a high likelihood that they can begin to relax and be easy. Uh -huh. But as a consequence of this prostate trial, we have a gentleman, Robert Butler, who's become a patient advocate. And he's an engineer, a former engineer. And he's been on our trial now for going on four years. Huh. His health is wonderful. Um, he's enjoying life. If you sit with him, chat with him, he feels healthy. Yet his tumor burden, his cancer burden, is no less than it was the day he walked in for the initial treatment in this trial. Hmm. And so Robert Butler then represents a new experience that we have never had in the United States in that we're not dealing with a patient advocate who is a cancer survivor. He is somebody who is cancer contained, cancer contained. He is a cancer patient who is surviving with a chronic disease, as you might have with HIV or other chronic diseases. And unsurprisingly then, when he goes to sleep at night, it's not with the knowledge of, gee, maybe the cancer is gone. It's with the knowledge that I am sleeping with the cancer, but that a sequence of ecological and evolutionary theories, the talents of Dr. Jingsong Zhang, is creating an equilibrium in his body in which he can actually live with this species inside of him. And his reaction to this in terms of becoming empowered is to want to understand it. So we have become good friends. Um, I think he may have overconfidence, but he's an incredible human being who not only wanted to know his oncologist, who he sees regularly, but he wanted to meet myself, the people that wrote the mathematical equation that he feels is keeping him alive. Hmm. Wow. And when you say he's a patient advocate, does that mean that he's advocating among other patients for this treatment? Is he, is he like spreading the word? Is it? So what that means then is exactly. So he's available then to try to represent a spokesperson uh -huh. for what it's like to be a patient and being treated with cancer. So that means available to help or at least provide that level of understanding of this disease that those of us that have not been afflicted by it can perhaps never fully understand when you're dealing with an individual who's been told that they have a terminal disease. Right. Uh, furthermore, then, <clears throat> he serves as an individual that is a constant reminder to us as scientists. Mm -hmm. He's a constant reminder to me as a scientist. He's a constant advocate, then, for patients at Moffitt that is a reminder that as I have the privilege, then, of being able to do research, 
pursue the questions that I find exciting, mm -hmm. um, that my job is to serve him, and he is simply a representative mm -hmm. of many other husbands, mm -hmm. spouses, partners, aunts, uncles, mm -hmm. siblings. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Uh, it's really an exciting way of thinking about things, but do you... So, so a similar thing is happening with regard to infectious diseases. There's a concept that's become quite popular. It's, just, it's called tolerance. It's not the same way that we think about tolerance with regard to cancer, but um, it is becoming something that, that people are really working more towards and advocating with regard to malaria and HIV and things too. Um, I, I don't want to talk too much about that. I'm, I'm actually bringing it up because with this, you know, we'll call it, let's call it a success. Let's hope that it's something that can transfer. What are the other sort of directions that you're, you're thinking? I mean, the other applications, not necessarily of competition among cell types is a, a way to use ecological theory in the interest of cancer. What are the other things that might come down the road for you? Well, so what to me is is fascinating and the opportunity that is opening up for myself and hopefully a whole suite of cancer biologists and researchers is that the traditional standard of care has been maximum tolerable dose. You present with cancer, you go in, please get this disease out of me as quickly as possible. So you nuke it with everything you got, huh? Exactly. Yeah. And so generally you will hit it with the level of dosage that is right up to the level of tolerance of the patient with this sense, and it is, it's intuitively appealing. If right. I can kill the cancer get it cell, out of my body. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so this realization that as soon as you submit therapy, the moment the physician then applies radiation, immunotherapy, CAR-T therapy, chemotherapy, check block point, whatever is the list of a long list of particular therapeutic agents. At that point, it is evolutionary game on. It's evolutionary game on. And I want the physicians to know that. Mm -hmm. And they need to communicate that to the patient. That at that point, if you do not kill all of them, those cancer cells will respond. Mm -hmm. And when they evolve, they will be worse than what you started with. Mm -hmm. And so I think we can agree that with that perspective, that you might want to then anticipate. Wouldn't it be a good idea to anticipate the next move of the cancer cell? And the cancer cell can never respond to what you have not done. <laughs> the cancer cells only evolve once you've done it. So you hold the cards. You hold the advantage then of being able to map out a plan. And what I would like to see in cancer in my own work is eventually to develop, like we have in bacteria for antibiotic resistance, like we've had in pest management with insects, mm -hmm. a resistant management plan. Where you sit down with the patient and indicate the likelihood of cure. In the event of no cure, what is gonna be the next step? What is the next plan? But right now, we tend to do a form of personalized medicine in which we measure all of the properties of the tumor now. We then map out six months, nine months, 18 months of repeated therapy in which we do not deviate. And then after we have completed that round of therapy, where we have handed the advantage to the cancer cell, we step back and call it remission. Hmm. And then we keep our fingers crossed. And then at that point, when the cancer population returns to an unacceptable level, we then re-say it has progressed and we go to a second-line therapy. Right. But wouldn't it be nice to sit down with the patient and say, well, if it was such a good idea to go to a second-line therapy when it progressed, why weren't we doing something sooner? Mm -hmm. The cancer cell was not sleeping. When it is in remission, 
really what we are saying is it is a small population size. Mm -hmm. It is not that it is gone. Right. It's not that it's quiescent. And the cells may still be very bad. And they are yeah. evolving. Yeah. yeah. And as yeah. we all know, with bad relationships, they tend to have been over long before they end. <laughs> they were over long before they end. And so when a cancer progresses, the evolutionary events that resulted in the progression happened a long time before. Mm. And so wouldn't it be nice mm -hmm. to be able, so my dream then in kind of the cancer world would be to use these ecological and evolutionary principles to be able to first anticipate what the cancer is going to do, like a chess game. Right, right. Then to be able to steer the cancer. And wouldn't it be delicious? So here's my fantasy, 10 years, 15 years, who knows? Wouldn't it be delicious to steer the cancer to its own extinction? Yeah. That'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs>We already talked about it, but, but I, I got to ask, we got to tell everybody else, why is a squirrel biologist now doing cancer research? Yeah, how did that happen? <laughs> That's a rare thing. So, so yes, I'm an oddity. Um, <laughs> it is very nice of the director to point out that Moffitt may be the only cancer center in the world with a squirrel biologist. But, um, but the path was actually, for me, very easy but unintentional. I think for those of you that are here in the audience that are remotely near my age, you might be able to agree with Kierkegaard's observation that life can only be lived forward, but understood backwards. And I'm now old enough where I can begin to understand it, where I spent <laughs> most of the time just living it. And in hindsight, what I realize, my passion, my love and research is understanding the adaptations of organisms whether it's your wonderful Antarctic spiders, whether it's the evolution of diseases that you study in the frogs or the house sparrows, my fascination has always been adaptations. And over 30 years, I have realized, again, in hindsight, that I never really picked my study animals. My graduate students, my colleagues, picked black rhinos, they picked snow leopards, they picked soybeans, domestic dogs in Tanzania, coral reef fish in Hawaii, octopus in Alaska. Boy, these all sound terrible, don't they? <laughs> it's not a bad miserable life. Yeah, I'll take that. And so I think I was happy that. And then suddenly in 2009, my former game theory mentor, co-advisor for my PhD, and Bob Gatenby, the visionary for applying evolutionary therapies at Moffitt Cancer Center, picked cancer as my study organism. So that's why. Fair enough. Good. So as far as Q&A goes, uh, Haley and Chloe have some recorders back there. We, we want to get your questions. You will be famous on the podcast if you ask us a question. Here's yeah. a question right here. Clint, here in the front. I don't know if I read it, had a conversation with somebody about it, but I was under the impression prior to this that cancer cells were fairly fragile metabolically. Like if you cut off their sugar supply, they'd croak um and they couldn't adapt and so forth but what it sounds like from this is they're actually the opposite of that they're very highly adaptive to um, challenges in their environment so i think the answer is both so the good news is as a single-celled organism they're not particularly robust your standard amoeba paramecium in the environment if they could be cognizant would laugh at them and say, you're just not a terribly robust cell. 
um, if you will allow me a little bit of sort of irreverence, that explains why when you die, cancer cells don't jump into the soil and race all over the place. But when you do die, all those other single-celled organisms jump into you. But within the context of the human body, they are finely tuned cells because they carry with them all of the traits that are required for surviving in the environment of you and I. And that as that environment degrades, becomes acidic, lack of oxygen and other features, yes indeed, that represents a stress on those cancer cells that over time, those are stresses that they begin to evolve adaptations to that allow them to tolerate it. So in one sense, a cancer cell cannot tolerate levels of acidity or levels of alkalinity that a single cell paramecium would in a body of water. However, they are able to survive the range of acidity and alkalinity that occur within our body that can be outside. Other questions? There's one there, Haley. So from an emotional standpoint, and kind of thinking about patients as you know, the holistic treatment of the patient, how do you feel patients have responded in this and a paradigm shift from trying to eliminate cancer to living with cancer as a chronic disease and trying to stabilize it more? How are the patients responding to that? So actually I had the opportunity recently at NIH um, in Bethesda to listen to a couple of talks from patient advocates addressing exactly that issue of what happens when you begin to treat this as a chronic disease. Uh, the first emotional step, I think you're correct, but of course myself having not experienced the circumstances that these men or women would have to deal with in choosing to go on an adaptive therapy, first and foremost, there's that desire to get rid of it. There's that sense that if you kill them quickly. However, I think the population, most now individuals that are confronted with cancer, tend to be far more educated than that person might have been 30 or 40 years ago. Furthermore, at cancer centers, Moffitt included, there's much more of an effort now to engage the patient in their decisions rather than the doctor knows all. And so I think patients then, when they are faced with the opportunity of a trial like this, is really how they connect the facts their prognosis for survival within their emotional reaction then to these opportunities. And it is completely understandable when a patient says no, give me maximum tolerable dose, please kill them. And I hope I'm one of those rare individuals that's in the tail of the distribution. I know my survival expectation is 16 or 12 months. But maybe, and you will see this, think in your own families or your own experience with individuals that have had terminal cancer. Every one of us begs and hopes that our loved one is special. We know they're special. And we hope that somehow they're the one in the tail of the distribution that will go five years or six years. But I think an individual like Robert Butler or other ones that understand the nature of statistics this then I think can become empowering, but then it is that transition of thinking. And I believe that as if and when these become more successful, then these will begin to be more common. As soon as you can look around this patio and have two individuals that are living with a chronic cancer, and they're not only smarter than you and I, 
They actually look happier than you and I. <laughs> you and I might say, wow, I want what they have. Well, no, just. Any other questions? There's one over here. We got one. Hi. So you mentioned that inside of a tumor that there's billions and billions upon cells and they each independently, they gather their own resources. Is that why tumors never really reach a carrying capacity because they're not competing for other resources? They just kind of gather what they can that's surrounding them or can they reach a carrying capacity through your research? So in this, I was just actually lecturing on this recently. Um, there are actually three levels of carrying capacity in cancer. Level number one is the rate at which the cancer cells at a spot within the tumor reach a level and density of cells that can no longer grow because of limiting resources. That represents the lumpiness of a tumor. So the reason it's a breast lump, or you have a lump in a pancreas, is that those are cells that have achieved a local carrying capacity at that spot. So that's one level. The second level is the extent to which a tumor can grow, the entire population of cancer cells in terms of the size of the tumor. It is dictated by the amount of blood flow going in and out. As that tumor grows, expands the tumor size, the recruitment of blood vessels is slower than the rate of the cancer cells growing. And so that's why for most tumors, most cancers, uh, brain cancer accepted, kidney cancer, other ones, that's why most cancers, the primary tumor will not kill the patient. And that's because that tumor will reach its own carrying capacity. It can get no bigger based upon the blood supply. But what happens in metastases is now the cancer cells are colonizing new blood supplies. They're getting access to more and more of your blood supply each of them growing to a local carrying capacity of the lump, each of them expanding as a tumor to the size that is permissible, and then eventually it is that accumulation of cancers, cells, that eventually result in mortality. So, and in all seriousness, I know this can be tough to wrap one's head around, but in terms of, from a scientific perspective, if it is something like a brain cancer, it is actually the pressure that the tumor puts on the brain that causes hemorrhaging and the destruction of the brain. In the case of metastatic thyroid cancer that we've just been dealing with recently, where the metastases go to the lung, as those metastases grow, they create such blood or fluid filling of the lungs that the patient eventually suffocates on their own fluid buildup. But if you're dealing with pancreatic cancer, colon cancer, say pancreatic cancer that goes to the liver, if you're dealing with the prostate cancer patients we've been dealing with in which they may have 15, 20 bone metastases, when that tumor burden, we don't know precisely, but when that tumor burden hits about 750 grams, at that point your body's physiology cannot tolerate all of the nutrients that the tumors are sucking up and all the metabolites, toxins, and poisons that they're dumping inside of you. As an evolutionary biologist, do you think that there's a theory or have a theory of why there might be more onset of cancer as we've seen it happening in younger and younger populations, as well as an increase in, in other populations as far as age and people? Yes. So. Um, 
Several, I think. So the, the old part is easy. Um, we have what evolution by natural selection generally selects for anti-cancer adaptations that are commensurate with the life history of the organism. So any species that begins to live for whatever reason way beyond what was normal in its evolutionary context, you will see the onset of cancer in old age. So for instance, the onset of cancer in us, the age of 50 and beyond, is to be expected. It becomes part of senescence. Very few people in our evolutionary context would have reached that age. The first time I was ever in Ghana in West Africa in 1979, life expectancy was 39. Life expectancy in Ghana is now in the 60s. Guess what? Ghana now has an epidemic of cancer. But in this case, it's not an epidemic. It's a symptom of success. It's a symptom of being able to have nutrition, health, avoiding disease, infection, and living to that age. Now, the other interesting question is the onset of these juvenile or sub, you know, long adolescent, young adult cancers. There are probably several answers to that, and here we get one answer is simply that they tend to, thank goodness, be relatively rare. And so during periods in our life history or during periods of history where infant mortality was high, juvenile mortality was high, the good news is unless we do stupid things to each other or unless as an adolescent we manage to show adolescent indiscretion. Adolescents now have a very, very high probability of never dying of something before they reach adulthood. So what that means is that only leaves cancer. And so it seems more conspicuous because we've removed all the other sources of mortality. And that source of mortality during days and age where children would die of whooping cough, they would die of the flu, you had a variety of ways by which young adults would not survive to adulthood, suddenly this very low background level of cancer would not have seemed so important. So I would say that most of the, and then I'll get to the third aspect, most of the incidence of cancer that we see is a symptom of our success. It's because we live longer and have a chance then to, sadly, figure out how to die of cancer instead of something else. It's also because we've stripped away so many of the other mortality factors in youth. But there is, and this is an important component, and that is the third component of this, is that given the cancer is going to initiate as a consequence of cell division and mutation. Anything in our lifestyle, anything in our food, anything in our air, anything in our environment that enhances mutagens is going to increase cancer rates across the whole population. Furthermore, anything in our lifestyle, anything that increases inflammation, whether it's inflammation in the lungs, in the gut, in the skin, also will create the environment that allows for more cell divisions that in theory could create an increase in cancer. So some is, I'd say, congratulations humans, we've done well. The second one is now we should pay attention then to these environmental influences, lifestyle influences on cancer. Last question, yeah, last question. Uh, I'm interested in how potentially an evolutionary perspective might be able to help the advancement in CAR-T and solid tumor or as well as improving effic uh, efficacy 
of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in solid tumor as well, since both of those mechanisms seem to be yielding pretty good results when they do work. Right, and so I think, and again, that's great. And absolutely, this attempt then to find combinations of therapies and other things that deliver incremental improvements in survivorship and progression-free is wonderful. But let's now think outside the box. CAR-T therapy is like amazing. What happens in CAR-T therapy is they will actually take a biopsy of your tumor. They will take a sample of your blood and isolate the immune conditions. Then outside of you, they will then breed and train your immune system on that biopsy. So they basically train the ninjas that are specifically capable of finding and killing your tumor. How many of you agree that that sounds great? Absolutely. And then what they do is over a sequence of two injections or so, they will inject these ninjas into you. But now they're using it as a first-line therapy. That means your tumor burden is large, your tumors are large. At that point, when you unleash these predators on a large population of prey, unsurprisingly, they don't get them all. They don't get them all. And unsurprisingly, those cancer cells will then evolve resistance to your immune system. And so when CAR-T therapy fails, you're often worse off because now you've selected four cancer cells that can evade your entire immune system. So let me just throw out to you and just see what you think. So here's ecologically and evolutionary. How about we try a chemo, a targeted therapy, a cytotoxic therapy that we know will not kill them all that will reduce the tumor burdens to a fraction of what they are. Maybe we'll go from a tumor burden of 50 billion cells, 20 billion cells, to maybe 10 million cells. Now, what if we had taken the biopsy and trained the killer CAR T cells, and now we hold them in reserve and use them as a second strike? Use them as a second strike because we know they will be more effective in killing everybody, in this case, the cancer cells being the everybody, if there's a smaller population. So I think your observation, this applying various forms of immunotherapy, combination therapies, is the way to go. But I believe we can use ecological and evolutionary principles to do it smarter. So I think we should, um we should thank Joel for an absolutely uh, fantastic chat. Yeah. Thank you so much. When someone you love has cancer, all you want is to eliminate the disease. But if we treat cancer like an organism in its ecosystem, we might be able to find a way for it to coexist with us. Not going away for good, but not causing disease either. Let us know what you think about Joel's ideas. You can contact us through the website or social media, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And remember, this was our first live event, but we're planning on doing more like these in the future. We really like connecting with the audience, and live events are a great way to do that. And if you're interested in hosting a big biology event, feel free to get in touch. We also want to remind you that we just launched a new Patreon page, and we're hoping to raise some money to support the podcast. The show is still free to everyone, but if you want to help make the podcast happen, then visit the Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio and donate. Thanks to Matt Blois for writing and production help on this episode. Thank you to Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey for managing our social media feeds. And thanks also to Taste of Science for hosting this event. 
Finally, thanks to Steve Lane for managing our website. Thank you to the University of South Florida's College of Public Health for financial support. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear. Also, we had to make a correction on our last episode with Patty Brennan. We got her academic affiliation wrong. She's a professor at Mount Holyoke College. We reposted the episode with the correction.